0: Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canadaland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canadaland shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your
1: show notes to become a supporter today.
2: FreshBooks is a ridiculously easy-to-use cloud accounting software for small business owners that saves you time and gets you paid faster, now used by over 10 million people worldwide. For your 30-day free trial, go to freshbooks.com oppo and enter oppo, O-P-P-O, in the how did you hear about it section.
0: Have you heard about the newest addition to the Sonos Home Sound System? Sonos Beam is a smart, compact soundbar for your TV. It's Amazon Alexa enabled for easy voice control and delivers crystal clear, richly detailed sounds for movies, shows and video games, plus music, podcasts and more. Wirelessly connect it to other Sonos speakers and enjoy listening all over your home. Pre-order Sonos Beam now at Sonos.com and start your home sound system today. From Canada land, this is Oppo.
2: I'm Justin Ling in uh, Toronto, I think, and I'm opposed to Jen Gerson.
0: I'm Jen Gerson in Calgary, and I'm opposed to Justin Ling.
2: How do I look, Jen? Like shit. (laughs) I feel like shit. I hope everyone in Toronto had a happy Pride, and I hope if you're going to celebrate Pride in whatever miserable city you live in across the country, you have fun out there as well. This week, we're going to go to something very dark immediately. If anybody had putting children in cages in the Trump pool, congratulations. Congratulations. Everything is terrible. This week, we're going to dive deep into Canada's own immigration system and ask the question, are we really that much better? The answer is yes, but we're going to ask the question anyway.
0: Personally, I had put my own child in cage in my pool, but um, moving (laughs) on. You thought the
2: president was going to come cage your child?
0: Oh, no, I thought I was going to cage my child.
2: Well, uh, does anyone have the number for child services? (laughs)
0: Since this is the final episode of Oppo for the season... It is? Yeah. Jesus. We're going to take a look back at the batshit year that was. My God, what a year to launch a Canadian politics podcast. It's like been manna from heaven.
2: I'm paying attention to nothing this summer. I will be hibernating. I'm going to reverse bear it.
0: i got to pay daycare bills like an adult. So I'm not going to be taking any time off like usual.
2: You know it's cheaper than the daycare?
0: Abstinence. <laughs> Track your hours, format the estimate, work out taxes, capture your expenses, chase the late payment, prepare the invoice, submit the proposal. Ah, freelance life. Welcome to the worst part of being a freelancer, otherwise known as paperwork. The good news is that our friends Freshbooks have created ridiculously easy cloud accounting software for freelancers that turns tackling these time sucking, never ending tasks into no big thing. Send a polished invoice in 30 seconds, set yourself up to get paid online in two clicks, and manage your expenses by taking pictures of receipts from your phone. Oh, and if you need to whip up a quick proposal to land the gig, Freshbooks has you covered. Now you can include an outline of your project, scope of work, and a timeline as part of your estimate. No more switching software, no more fussing over style and formatting, and most importantly, no more wasting your precious time. To find out all the ways Freshbooks will transform how you deal with your paperwork, go to freshbooks.com/oppo and enter OPPO in the how did you hear about us section. So, Justin, in all seriousness, I'm having a really hard time with the story about the kids being separated at the border. So hard a time that I've actually been avoiding Twitter for the last couple of weeks, because whenever I see pictures or read details of these stories, it causes me physical, visceral pain and discomfort. And I don't know, maybe it's a slightly different thing for people who don't have kids. But if you have kids, I mean, the empathy that is forced upon you by biology messes with your soul and it means that whenever you see a child in suffering it just makes you ache inside in a really terrible and uncomfortable way yeah
2: as a childless gay it hasn't bothered me at all
0: yeah okay so that's perfect then you were exactly the right guy to talk about this because i lack like i like i'll admit this i lack all objectivity on this file like i really can't like the last couple of nights i've actually snuck into my son's room and like watched him sleeping and been really, really tempted to pick him up, take him back to my bed with me and cuddle him until I remember that whenever I do that, he kicks me repeatedly in the <laughs> face. And you know what? I'm just tempted to do it anyway, because you know what? Damn it. You kick me in my face, toddler. You kick me in my face like we're together.
2: Yeah, I may be a childless gay, but even I felt just genuinely sad of the last couple of weeks. Evidently, Donald Trump ran on a platform of aggressive, punitive, mean spirited immigration reform. He tapped into a base of people who really do believe the immigrants are just taking their jobs, who do believe in holding a tiki torch and shouting things like, Jews will not replace us. That is the anger he tapped into the entire campaign. And now it's coming to fruition.
0: They genuinely believe that these migrants are going to kill them. Like, these genuinely believe these migrants yeah. are all sort of criminals. And if you don't, like, take them up the border and arrest them and separate their kids, well, then they're going to be an existential threat to you as an American. Which is insane, because the actual crime rates of migrants, even illegal migrants, coming across the border is actually considerably less than native-born Americans. But, you know, that's the mentality, right? Facts
2: don't matter. All that matters right now is... MS-13 is coming to overthrow the American government. You know, these migrants are going to completely change the framework and the mesh that holds America together. And, you know, this is a absolute imminent danger. It is ludicrous, of course. But what has been amazing to me over the last couple of weeks is that we've seen Trump's rhetoric and policy positions, insofar as you can call them that, from the campaign go farther than I think anybody anticipated. We did not actually expect him to start locking children in cages. Now, I'm actually quite impressed the president stepped back on this. I genuinely believe this was going to be just like the Muslim ban. He's going to take all the outrage. He's going to spin it right back against the Dems and the Libs and manage to basically ride it out. The fact that he stepped back, I think, is one of the first real walkbacks of this administration where he's acknowledged that something he's done has been over the line. But it's still terrifying that he was willing to go that far. And I I don't think this is the end.
0: But wait, wait, wait. No, no. I ain't giving him that much credit because, I mean, there's still, what, 2,500 kids who are living in a refurbished Walmart and a lot of them a lot of them will simply never see their families again because apparently reuniting these families is just not right. possible. I mean that is disgusting. I'm sorry. I'm so I'm so upset about this that I almost don't want to talk about it. I'm so angry that that is possible to be happening in a first world. Go with a polaroid camera. Take pictures of them and like show them to like you know anything. Do anything to try and get these kids back together. It's I'm sorry I'm gonna start crying. I'm gonna start crying right now it's it's not good.
2: obviously this whole conversation has forced us to take a look domestically for two reasons you know one is that, it feels like we should do something about it. Like, we don't really know what yet, but it feels like we should do something because when your closest neighbor starts locking children in cages in his backyard, you feel a moral obligation to get involved?
0: Yes, yes, I do. I feel a moral <laughs> obligation. No, like, I think that we should hire a bunch of greyhounds and bring all of these families back to Canada. Oh, you mean the buses? And, like, commit... Yes, great. No, it wasn't just, w- like, putting them on the back of dogs. That was not or, my... Like, support I animals. Don't think that's the most practical solution. No, put them on buses, bring them to Canada, and we will commit to reuniting and processing their asylum claims here. Like, I think that we actually have a moral obligation to do
2: something like that. And people have talked about that, and we're going to get there. We're going to get there because that—that that is a whole can of worms. But, you know, the other part of it is a fear that we're going to have the same thing here. All it's going to take is somebody who's willing to go there. And I would have told you a couple months ago, I don't think there's any politician in Canada cravenly stupid and obnoxious enough to go there. And you know what? No longer convinced. I think especially seeing Doug Ford win in Ontario. Admittedly, he ran without demonizing any, you know, migrants, any refugees. He did not run a xenophobic campaign, but he proved the power of populism in Canada. And I'm terrified someone else is going to tap into that vein. The Conservative Party right now federally... They're not doing it, but you're seeing them already notice that when they talk about migration issues, it has a positive effect.
0: Well, especially in Quebec, right, Right. where a lot of these border crossings are happening, A and B, where the conservatives are trying to eat up some vote ahead of the pending collapse of the NDP. They think they can actually make some serious gains in Quebec. So it's a really tight line to walk. I don't think that it's a problem for a politician to be like, look, we have some concerns with migrants crossing the border, particularly in winter. It's a humanitarian issue. It's a resources issue. And we need to be able to have a strategy or a process in place to try and cope with some of these issues. You know, but it's a fine line to walk between criticizing the government on its current policy and trying to make practical solutions and then just trying to tap into fear that, you know, these migrants are going to take your jobs and kill your children. You know what I mean? Like there's a, a give and take there. We can't assume that every single criticism of the government's current immigration and migration policy is rooted in xenophobia and racism. because. Like It isn't. Right. But, you know, be careful because it's as we saw in the last federal election, it is so easy to go over that line. And especially if you're a conservative politician in this country.
2: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the one thing that has made me a little bit uncomfortable is that the conservative party has aggressively been talking about this as a crisis. And they've started whipping up a bit of the fear that this is getting out of control. Now, I think. Michelle Rempel, the conservative immigration critic, has done this pretty responsibly. She's honed in on you know, basically a lack of planning organization by the liberal government and how they deal with those irregular claims across the Quebec and Ontario borders and Manitoba as well. That's good. But again, I think when you really hype up the rhetoric on this, call it a crisis, call it a disaster – people start matching your rhetoric with fear. Now, it is a borderline, a complete failure by the government. I mean, we're looking at now tens and thousands of people who have come across these borders who have made claims. What's interesting to me, though, is that, you know, we have the government aggressively telling them, don't come over, stay where you are. We've actually seen the Trudeau government send ministers and uh, parliamentary secretaries down to the southern U.S. and elsewhere to try to deliver the message don't come across the land border. But actually, more than 1,600 of those irregular border crossers have actually been given immigration status. Their claims were actually approved, which I actually find quite interesting. I mean, the government has sort of told everybody, if you come across, you're not going to get status. And that actually hasn't really been true. There actually has been a number of people. It's only you know about 15%, but a number of them have actually been given status, which is interesting. It actually does prove that the people who are crossing this border are not just you know economic migrants uh, who couldn't get their claim accepted in the U.S., some of them are legitimate refugees who had to do this as a last ditch effort because they couldn't find another avenue to get status.
0: Well, and here's the other thing that I find very frustrating about this is like, you know, we talk about tens of thousands of people coming over the border over the last couple of years. We are dealing globally with the worst refugee and mass migration crisis in global history. It exceeds what happened during the Second World War right now. And like, oh, we in Canada insulated on three sides by oceans and on one side by a giant country have been largely immune to this global crisis. Well, guess what? Tens of thousands of people coming across the border? That's a fraction. That's a drop in the bucket of what's happening across the world. And we are not isolated from the world. We are part of the world, and we really should be committed to be part of the solution. And I'm sorry, but, you know, this Trudeau government got a hell of a lot of press for, you know, welcoming refugees, Syrian refugees at the border, and Canada did a great job in terms of its private refugee crisis. This is all commendable. But it was fractional. It was fractional. Like, we really actually need to be tripling and quadrupling these efforts before we're even in the ballpark of being a part of the solution to this problem.
2: Yeah, so the Trudeau government obviously increased its immigration quotas over the last couple of years and is actually planning a, a step up for the next several years. We're looking at uh, 310000 in 2018, 340000 2019 into 2020. It is an increase. I mean, you know, the Trudeau government— Yeah,
0: but no, but the immigration, for things, but not the refugee claims—
2: well, yes and no. Actually, no. Refugee claims have actually increased mostly because of the special program for the Syrian refugees. And it, it seems like it will go back down to a baseline after that program is finally
0: finished. It's already gone down. Right. Go look at it. Go look at it. It's already gone down. Like there was a spike right at the height of the crisis in terms of the number of right. refugee claimants that people were claiming. And like the second the issue got out of the news our claimants dramatically dropped. Right. So, like, we're not even... You know, I think that people, a lot of people think that we're, like, some kind of global leader in terms of taking in refugee crisis. It's bullshit. We're not. We're not even close. And like that's not to denigrate any of the incredible efforts of private citizens across the country who've done an amazing job getting people in. But we need to be accepting four or five, ten times the number of people relative to our population and wealth. And we're not doing it, but we're getting a lot of good press for what we have done.
2: A lot of people in the last couple of days have pointed out that Canada also locks up migrant children. And it's true. We do have pretty awful immigration detention facilities in this country for those who have sometimes made the irregular crossing, uh, in some cases who have been discovered to be living here without documentation, and in other cases are people who just kind of make claims at the airport or at a seaport who are taken to a detention facility while they're being processed or potentially deported. Obviously, it's so much fewer than the U.S. Between 2011 and 2015, which I think is the most recent stats we have, according to Vice News, 200 children were detained, and they were detained with their parents. It's not pleasant. I think we have to end this. I mean, it's still ridiculous we have these detention facilities. And what bugs me, and this is what bugs me about so much immigration policy, both in Canada, the U.S., Europe, you name it, is that it's not actually functional. It's punitive. It's not a useful program to be detaining refugees or, you know, failed migrant claimants. We do it basically to warn others, don't come here and screw with our system. But it's not useful. It's a small fraction of failed claimants, even if we just let them out of their own reconnaissance, basically like bail, and just kept tabs on them that would be the same effect and a couple might slip through oh well honestly oh well
0: i'm not really convinced that you know you wouldn't have a lot of these claimants just essentially never show up to their
2: yeah, maybe. Like, I think some that people might disappear. To... You know what? Maybe that's better than spending hundreds of millions of dollars running a kind of secondary, second tier, less observed jail program for some of the most vulnerable migrants in the world.
0: But, but wait, you're creating a false dichotomy. You're saying like there are only two possible options: either letting people into the country or warehousing them in these terrible detention facilities. Like, I, totally. I actually think that there's probably a, a better way of doing it. Like taking a look at whether or not some of these refugee claimants are flight risk in the same way we do with other people who are dealing with sentencing and sentencing procedures, and then determining there whether or not they actually should be in a detention facility versus whether or not they should be released to their own recognizance, essentially. Yeah. But that doesn't mean the detention facility should be prison-like or dire or bad, especially family detention facilities. They should have a home-like environment. They should be comfortable. They should be supportive and nurturing for people who have come from traumatic situations. They should be staffed with counselors. They should. At be- the
2: end of the day, a jail is a jail. You know, I, I think when you're detaining people, it's a det- Look,
0: I don't think that we should necessarily get rid of all detention for all refugees in all cases. I don't think that that is the answer. But at the same time, there's no reason why we can't be excessively humane in terms of how we treat the people we do feel the need to detain. But here's
2: another part of this problem is that our refugee claimant system is inherently inhumane. The way in which we assess refugee claimants is honestly abhorrent. We set a handful of very specific classes, right? So you're fleeing persecution based on your gender identity, your sexuality, your religion, or you're fleeing kind of a more wide issue, like war, civil conflict, so on. There's a couple of others, but those those are the big ones. If you don't fall exactly into one of those categories, or if an Immigration Refugee Board judge, which are not real judges, by the way, they're partisan appointees who are in so many cases, fucking morons. If they decide that your claim is not quite up to snuff or they don't believe you. You're fucked. Yeah. In a lot of cases, you will get deported. The appeal process is hard to win at, especially if you can't afford a lawyer. And it can be incredibly difficult to convince, say, a federal court the previous decision should be overturned. Your claim should be approved or you should be given some sort of permanent residency status because you actually have a legitimate fear of going back. That whole system is so bad. If you actually sit and read some of these decisions, they're heartbreaking. You know, I've covered cases and I've interviewed people who have come to this country from, in one case, Uganda. uh, You know, a woman who was in a same-sex relationship and basically had an IRB judge tell her, I don't believe you. I don't believe any of the things you told me just happened. Uh, I don't believe you actually have a fear of being murdered or detained if you go back as a lesbian in Uganda, despite the fact that we know it's one of the most homophobic regimes in the world. Tough shit. And she was slated to be deported. This happens all the time. And we somehow just seem very fine with it. We seem very fine with our refugee system because we have these nice stories we hold up about these Syrian refugees who basically got to, you know, get into Canada free card from the prime minister. Every year, we're deporting thousands of people who probably have valid claims because they don't meet the exact threshold set to them by some partisan appointee from John Cretchen era who, you know, sleeps half the day and then comes in, rejects some refugee claims and goes back home. I once had a, a refugee lawyer tell me that You never wanted to have a case before noon with a specific refugee judge because if he's not had his lunch, he's grumpy and he will deny your claim. That is the most heartbreaking thing. And we don't talk about this. There's been no real conversation about fixing the refugee application system uh, ever, probably ever, because no one gives a shit. I mean, we're much happier talking about, you know, how to get rid of false claimants and how to speed up the system and and get people in and out faster than we are to talk about the kind of the very fundamental parts of the system.
0: Yeah. I mean, okay, so I'm definitely on board with broad based refugee climate reform. And I think that given the global crisis that we're dealing with right now, Canada has to be part of this. And the only way that we are going to be able to be part of this in a meaningful way is if we sort of address all of these issues. So, like, I'm on board here. But what is something that we could potentially do very quickly right now that might make a difference with what's happening to our neighbours to the south? Well, that's what we talk about where we need to start talking about the, uh, the safe third country agreement.
2: Right. I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced by this. Okay,
0: well, firstly, let's explain what the Safe Third Country Agreement is. The Safe Third Country Agreement is an agreement between Canada and the U.S. that basically says that any refugee coming in has to claim refugee status in their first point of entry.
2: That's right. So if you, if you arrive in the United States, you make a claim and it's either taking too long or you think it's going to be denied and you walk across the border, make the same claim in Canada, Canada has to say no.
0: Right. So essentially this shields Canada from an enormous number of refugee claimants because, of course, most people wind up in America first.
2: And it gives us basically uh, an excuse to deport a good many of them with basically a lower threshold than uh, we would if they you know, arrived here first. Uh, it gives us basically an excuse. Now, some, like I said earlier, some of them do end up getting stabbed. If they have a very, very valid argument that getting deported would be dangerous to their lives. But we still deport the vast majority of those who come across the US Canada border because. We basically say you should be making this claim in America.
0: There's a weird exception to the safe third country agreement, and that is it only seems to apply at official border crossings. So, you know, Niagara Falls or the crossing down here in Alberta, down in Montana. If you manage to wiggle around the official border crossing, well, then the safe third country agreement doesn't apply to you. And because the law of unintended consequences is what it is, that's led to tens of thousands of refugee claimants crossing the border in these weird, out of the way, isolated spots like Roxham Road in Quebec, places that are not equipped to deal with them and places that put their health and safety at risk because, you know, they're traipsing through farmers' fields in the middle of minus 40-degree winters and, you know, losing limbs in the process. So I think that this particular act has real problems. I don't think it's created to cope with the realities of a global refugee crisis. And I think that, you know, broad-based reform here is is what's on call. And I really would encourage the liberal government to consider that ahead of the next election because I think it's going to be an issue whether they like it or not.
2: You hear that, Trudeau? Broad-based reform.
0: Broad-based reform!
2: That's our version of clickbait. Have you heard about the newest addition to the Sonos Home Sound System? Sonos Beam is a smart, compact soundbar for your TV. It's Amazon Alexa-enabled for easy voice control and delivers crystal clear, richly detailed sound for movies, shows, and video games, plus music podcasts and more. Wirelessly connected to other Sonos speakers and enjoy listening all over your home. Jen, what do you listen to on your Sonos?
0: At the moment, when I try to distract my annoying toddler because he's crawling up my legs when I'm trying to put my makeup on, I say, Alexa, play Charlotte Diamond. And what does she play? Slippery fish.
1: Okay. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.
0: Let me explain Slippery Fish to you. It's this amazing song that I've been listening to since I was a kid, and it's Charlotte Diamond going, Slippery Fish, Slippery Fish, gliding through the water, Slippery Fish, Slippery Fish, bloop, bloop, oh, oh no, it's been eaten by, uh, anyway, you get the point, anyway, it's really <laughs> cute, and there's little there's little dance moves, and my little guy, he's now at the point where he dances, so he spins around, and then when he gets to the oh no part, he puts his hands in front of his face and he goes, oh no. Oh, no. it's, it's it's so cute. I die every time. Okay. So being able to control that via my voice when my hands are full and I have got a toddler on my hip is really, really helpful. And it's a brilliant distraction and it keeps them out of my hair for like a solid three and a half minutes. I totally recommend it.
2: Pre-order Sonos Beam now at Sonos.com and start your home sound system today. Jen, so... Obviously, it's been a hell of a year. A lot of shit has happened. I can barely remember what happened last Thursday. My brain is now basically mush. I unfortunately get every single one of Donald Trump's tweets sent directly to my home screen, and it has given me so much anxiety. I feel like the world's falling apart. And Donald Trump's tweeting at Jimmy Fallon again now? What the fuck is happening, Jen?
0: Thousand yard stare. (laughs) Like, I actually think that the news cycle is accelerating to such a point that at a certain point we're just going to transform into our next selves as a human. Like, (laughs) at a certain point, we're all just going to turn into beams of light. That's what I'm trying to say here. Everything's happening so quickly now that society is about to fall apart. And we are about to transcend our physical bodies and end into like the abyss, the ether. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. Jesus Christ. There's a
2: video of a bunch of these teenagers on a merry-go-round and one of them has like a motorbike and he puts the back wheel on the side of the merry-go-round and then revs the bike and it spins the merry-go-round faster and faster and faster until all the kids fly off of it. I feel like that's the news cycle.
0: Yes. That is an excellent way of describing the news cycle that doesn't have me advocating for mass suicide. So I really, (laughs) I think I really appreciate that that um nafta yeah
2: so we were told we were gonna get nafta done this summer no that didn't happen
0: i told you it wouldn't happen
2: there's leaked audio from the last couple of days of a, a Canadian negotiator admitting that they haven't been even negotiating for weeks the likelihood of us actually getting a deal anytime probably before the midterms seems incredibly unlikely this is actually to your point you made this exact case a couple months ago you said we're not gonna get a nafta deal before the midterms i told you you were wrong and here we are
0: yeah stupid head <laughs> No, I mean, we're not going to get a NAFTA deal till 2019. And at this point, I'm kind of suspecting that we're never going to get a NAFTA deal. I mean, there are still key positions that should be negotiating this NAFTA deal that haven't been filled in the U.S. Like the U.S. is simply not negotiating a NAFTA deal in good faith. They're quite honestly not. They're engaging in NAFTA theater for the purposes of their own domestic audiences. And that's it. Trump doesn't care if there's a deal or if there's not a deal because he wins either way. And so he's going to continue to play this right into the ground and exhaust us. Capital is going to continue to flee Canada because of the uncertainty of this deal. Tariffs are going to absolutely nail Ontario. And everything economically is going to go to shit for a few years. And there's nothing we can do about it.
2: Don't forget the fact that Mexico is going to be electing a new president very, very shortly. Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, or as everyone calls him apparently, AMLO, which sounds very disarming. He's actually a far left populist who's actually gone into basically a coalition agreement with a far right nationalist party. And fuck knows how that's going to go when he wins, because right now polls have him with a pretty comfortable lead. That... Is just going to complicate everything even further. He's not going to be able to have a working relationship with Donald Trump. They are not going to see eye to eye on anything. He probably can negotiate in good faith with Justin Trudeau. I can see them actually potentially getting a side deal, maybe. But uh, functionally, there's now too many crazy variables in the likelihood of us getting a deal. I actually am now at the point where I think the likelihood of us getting a NAFTA deal under a Trump presidency is rapidly approaching zero.
0: Correct. Thank you. (sighs) The other thing that I would point out here is that it's just going to be weird for a couple of years. And I think that people just need to sit down, you know, clench the side of their armchairs and accept that the national order by which we had become accustomed to relative peace and prosperity is coming to an end. It's evolving to something else. Whether or not it collapses completely, I don't know. But we can no longer take all the things that we have taken for granted in the last, you know, 30, 40 years, we can no longer continue to take those things for granted. So, you know, keep calm, carry on, continue working, do your best. But <laughs> I will
2: offer a little bit of historical perspective because in the 1970s under Richard Nixon, this exact same fear existed. You know, Richard Nixon yanked America off the gold standard, upsetting basically the entire world's monetary policy. And he slapped an import surcharge on basically Everything America buys, effectively just across-the-board tariffs of about 10%. And at that point, a lot of the reaction was similar. He was doing this to play to his blue-collar working-class former Democrat base. Sound familiar? And we got over it. We got through it. The world survived.
0: Yeah, and we will get through this one, too. I have some concerns about the long-term consequences of Trump, and I think maybe that's probably a better thing to get into in the seasoning opening of next... If
2: we're still alive by then.
0: If we're still alive by then and we haven't gone into nuclear war, I think there are some long-term consequences that we're not taking into consideration. But yes, of course, we will be fine. We're a wealthy country. We will survive. It's not catastrophic. It's not apocalyptic. And we're not alone. That's the other thing I would point out. It's like Canada has a lot of friends and allies around the world. We're not an American client state you know, we're a sovereign nation, and as a result, we can leverage those alliances, and we can leverage those friendships to our advantage, and I think we're going to have to. So it's just going to get really interesting, is just what I'm going to say. It's just going to get really interesting over the next couple of months and years.
2: Speaking of surviving the summer, Jugmeet Singh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so no? Jugmeet's not doing great. There's already some mumblings that people want to push him out of the party. I don't think they're very serious conversations, but nevertheless... He's not done a great job thus far.
0: Bring back Mulcair.
2: Oh, my God. No, let the man retire already. <laughs> Is he left yet? Like, my God. Like, get the man out of here. Like, could you not find a job? Like, Tom, you're great. You know what? It's time to move on. It's like, you know... Your 30-year-old son still living in your basement at this point.
0: I feel bad for Thomas Mulcair. I think his party absolutely gutted him, and I think that was actually quite a, a sad outcome for him.
2: If he didn't want to get gutted, he shouldn't have lost the election.
0: Well, <laughs> yes. Well, I guess that's. I suppose that's true. That's valid. Yeah. Uh, interesting to see what will happen. Jagmeet Singh. I think that the collapse of the federal NDP has been fascinating to watch, and I think with the other okay, it's been okay, interesting.
2: collapse is a little strong.
0: Fine. Whatever. The massacre,
2: the implosion. It is important to note that if an election were to happen again today, they would probably perform about as well as they did under the last election. The
0: inexplicable disappearance. They've been gone like a journalist in Russia, let me tell you. Oh,
2: oh, Jen. So, you know, I think the NDP has been missing in action on a lot of big policy files. I think when they do end up kind of weighing in on, you know, whatever important thing is happening, you're kind of tilting your head going, oh, okay, thanks for coming out. I have not found them to be very convincing on on many things. They're sort of knee jerk opposition to the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Meh. You know, they're. Other policy positions, I'm sure they have a couple. I can't think of anything off the top of my head, and that's probably indicative of how bad they've been doing.
0: I'm just going to assume child care and higher taxes. I mean, that's what I think of when I think NDP.
2: And this is the thing. It's, you know, Jagmeet Singh ran on some policy points that were, you know, a bit foreign to the NDP. You know, he started talking about racial profiling. He started talking about across the board drug decriminalization. It actually kind of felt a little bit bold, a little bit interesting. The NDP has run on the same fucking platform so many times. We get it. Pharmacare, eye care, daycare, income tax. Okay, we get it. Give us something else. You've lost on those points enough. You didn't lose because people didn't like your leader or they still wanted Jack Layton to come back. They didn't vote for you because you couldn't convince them that you were the best party to do the job. So change what you believe in or change what you're running on. Do different things. Like At a certain point, you must get tired of losing, right? Like Try something else.
0: No, you know what? I think that, like, there's a weird spiritual connection between conservatives in this country and NDP supporters in this country because even though they fundamentally and radically disagree on so many points, there's a, a grudging respect for the fact that, like, at least you believe in something. You know what I mean? As opposed to the liberals who are really just about telling anybody what they want to hear in order to get elected. And I actually Does don't— Does
2: the NDP really believe in anything anymore? Like, what what is the core— organizing philosophy at the heart of the NDP these days.
0: That I think is one of the real issues that the NDP has is that you don't really get the sense that I don't really know what they stand for anymore. I know know what the conservatives stand for. I sort of vaguely understand what the liberals are trying to project an image. I don't know if that's standing for something. But I, I think that the NDP actually kind of has lost their way ideologically. And I think that until they sort of sort that out and are able to create a compelling case for what they believe in, they're in some deep shit. But I don't wanna spend too much time on this because they're not that relevant anyway. (laughs) Speaking of what the Liberals purport to want to represent, let's talk about Trudeau and the fact that after like the most insanely huggy, kissy-feely honeymoon period in Canadian history, It ended this year with his trip to India.
2: I think more important is that the honeymoon on talking about the honeymoon period is finally over.
0: Yes, exactly, because we've all agreed. I'm so
2: tired of hearing that phrase.
0: Yes, exactly. But, well, you will again because, I mean, somebody else will get elected in time and they'll have a honeymoon period too. Anyway, Trudeau's trip to India I think really changed the way a lot of Canadians saw him and I no. thought it was an interesting thing.
2: I, I disagree with you so aggressively.
0: How many Canadians would void first asshole?
2: How many Canadians would actually me. would actually bring up the India trip like unprompted? How many of them actually, fucking Actually, a lot of
0: people do. Actually, I think a, a lot of a lot of a In lot Alberta, of maybe. his supporters well, sure. Well, yeah. I don't. I don't have the great cultural and ideological diversity of the annex at my fingertips. That's true. But anyway, I live in I mean, Parkdale. Oh well, then let me. <laughs> I'm schooled. No, here's what I would say is that actually, I hear a lot of supporters from sort of BC and Alberta area bring up India Trip unprompted. But here's why I think it was an interesting shift in the way people perceived Trudeau. In that, you know, for a long time. The conservatives have been running attack ads and memes that sort of intimate that Trudeau is fundamentally shallow and has no substance. And I think that the reason why the India trip really stuck with them is because it actually confirmed that narrative for a lot of people, and people started to see that narrative in a real way that they hadn't necessarily seen before. And here's the other thing that I think is fundamentally shifted about Trudeau: is that Trudeau came to power in 2015 on this on a bit of a of an Obama-like platform. He was very hopie touchy-feely, forward-thinking um, leader who was going to be the this- fresh new face for Canada after, you know, a long gray reign of Stephen Harper. And I think that's what people wanted in 2015. But what I think changed in the last few years is that the world changed. The world elected Donald Trump. You know, the world got, in a lot of ways, scarier and more economically uncertain. And, you know, is the hopey, changey, touchy-feely guy, the guy you want running your country when you're afraid? I think that 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 is a problem that Trudeau is going to have to contend with going into the next year.
2: Yeah. The problem with that is that I don't see Andrew Shear being the foil to that. I think if the conservatives had picked the right candidate, this might be very different. You know, what the conservatives needed was an almost Brian Mulrooney, kind of happy, charismatic, probably more centrist conservative. Instead they have Andrew Shearer. And, and and frankly, you know, I don't dislike Andrew Shear as a person. I quite liked him when he was speaker. As leader, and we've talked about this before, as leader, he's been the most reflexively jerkish opposition leader I can recall in recent memory. Like he again I've said this a thousand times. If the prime minister said the sky was blue, Andrew Shear would say it's red. I hear
0: what you're saying. And like, I'm not necessarily going to say like Andrew Shear's the guy. I think there's some work that he needs to do. But, you know, Trudeau's got some real headwinds. The NAFTA stuff is a big headwind. The tariff stuff is a big headwind. The perception stuff that's starting to coagulate around him is a giant headwind. How is he going to overcome these issues? I mean, I think Andrew Coyne actually pointed this out. I mean, for any for any leader, it doesn't matter how competent or great you are, any one of these problems would seriously derail your administration, you know, how is Trudeau going to cope with a much darker era is a question that I think is unanswered for me looking ahead.
2: There's one thing I'm, I'm kind of afraid of, and it's the next of the Ontario election. And it's something I, I think we all have to start thinking about. And it kind of makes me sad we do. But the power of uh, memes.
0: yeah. <laughs> So
2: in Ontario, if you haven't followed it, there was a group called Ontario Proud. And and Ontario Proud started off as just a Facebook page that was going after Kathleen Wynne. And at first it was sort of kind of cute. It didn't feel super mean spirited. A lot of it was vaguely around policy things. Over the course of the run up to the election and the election itself, they started getting money. They hired staff. They were putting a huge amount of money behind these Facebook ads. And they started running YouTube ads. They started running TV ads. They started doing, you know, uh, auto dialers and and doing basically robocalls throughout um, the province. That is a very organized effort by a group that doesn't care what you think about them. You know, the great thing about political campaigns and actually having parties campaign is that they have the reputation to uphold, right? If you go too negative, the voters won't like you. They're going to turn on you. If you are a third party group, you don't give a shit. You are the heel. You are the villain. And it does not matter what the public thinks about you. It only matters how much damage you can do to the person you don't want to win.
0: Well, third party advertisers and third party advocacy groups are not new. Ontario Proud's just been more effective than most of them have been. So, like, let's not pretend that there's something sort of deeply nefarious or, or unique about what Ontario Proud's doing. They've just been better at it. So, you know, I think that if you're on the left, you need to be taking notes to be honest with you.
2: What we've learned recently is that the barriers to entry for becoming an advertiser now are so much lower. And the actual cost and ability to, to deliver these ads online has grown exponentially. The ability to use them. Look at what the Russians did. You know, there's a direct lines between what Ontario Proud is doing and what the Russians did in the U.S. election. Obviously, that that's quite different. You know, Ontario Proud is not run by a weird troll farm. I mean... It is run by a weird troll farmer. They're not Russians, is what I'm trying to say.
0: So we think.
2: <laughs> Jeff, if you're listening, I want to see your birth certificate. <laughs> so, But it's it sort of freaking me out because you know I tend to think that it's going to be very effective in the federal election as well. Obviously, there are limits to what third-party advertisers can do federally, but I'm not sure those limits are stringent enough to stop a whole bunch of groups from rushing into the field and basically tilting the entire balance of the outcome of the election. Now, maybe the left will be more effective at it than Ontario Proud will be. It's totally possible, but I don't really well, care.
0: I'm open to a conversation about serious limits on third-party advertisers. I'm open to that debate and that conversation. However, like, let's not pretend that, like, it's only nefarious or evil when the right does no, it. No, no, I no, mean, no. I mean, come on. Like, if Ontario Proud's been effective, then take fucking notes, dude. Like, figure out how they did it. And if you are opposed to them and their ideology and their message, compete with them. That's the purpose of the political system. This idea that, like, oh, goodness me, a third-party advertiser will influence the election— that's democracy, motherfuckers. Yes, it's not dem- third no, parties that's have no, the right. No, 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 no that, that's that, not that, that democracy. is not democracy. That is no, no. That is absolutely dem- democracy. It's when groups of citizens form advocacy groups or collections of people, and then advocate for their own interests and well, potentially win or lose. Oh my
2: God, what bullshit! That's
0: part of the system. That that's you, part think, of you think how Ontario the Proud is just
2: an organically formed group of you know concerned citizens, and not of the former not, conservative strategist no, 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 actually no, is? Nor,
0: okay, nor is a is a union an organically group. More of so than Ontario. How, at system. least, at least you union oh, actually sorry. has members. Sorry, Why? Because it has because members. they actually.
2: The, who, who, are who are the members love, of Ontario who Proud? Who
0: are literally forced to actually pay dues to them by law. Come on now, Justin.
2: And who elect the members of their organization. You need their democratic institutions.
0: Look, look, look. I'm not opposed. Okay, but, but Ontario had a group of citizens and who've admit, come together. Admit and, that's and, oh bullshit, God, Jen. Admit that's raised bullshit. Raised money. Oh, my goodness. They've raised money and organized. Oh, my God. Democracy is under threat. Look, no, I'm open wait, to the wait, idea that... Stop like, pretending like... like, like no, no,
2: no, no. Stop pretending as though, like, we have this complete open Wild West system. Steve Stephen Harper made this case to the Supreme Court, what, 15 years ago, that money equals free speech, and the Supreme Court said, no, you idiot, that's stupid, that's not how the system works, we need to have limits and rules, or else this is chaos and rich people run the whole damn country.
0: Okay, but Justin, I'm not saying that I'm opposed to limits or rules on third-party spending, I'm open to that conversation and that debate, I'm just saying, like... You know what? If North 99 had swayed the election for like win or the NDP government, you'd be like, wow, this third party advertising thing is great. What a great show of democratic. Well, of let's course play.
2: that would never happen. The like, left is incompetent.
0: Well, OK, well, that's not our fault now, is it? <laughs>
2: <laughs> want to reach into the mailbag, Jen?
0: I want to reach into the mailbag because one of the other things that was a big topic this year uh, and that we really didn't address at all was the matter of pipelines. And that's because I'm so goddamn sick of writing about pipelines. But we did get a letter. From, you know, I wouldn't describe them as a fan of the show, but we did get a letter from someone who had some real issues with the fact that I lazily chose to avoid this issue. Quote, yes, the show is a place to talk about underserved issues. Yes, your personalities and interviews are selling points. And no, you won't be forced to add redundant coverage to topics you have no interest in. But if Alberta is going to war with BC and Trudeau is on an international campaign to avert it, well, yes, the people who turn to oppo for politics coverage expect to learn something about it. The attitude that came from you guys on today's show is that you're so over this topic. But guess what? I've been avoiding the topic all week and was looking forward to finally wrapping my head around it via your show. You would be shocked by how many people get their Canadian news from Canada land alone. This is scary and disturbing, but it's true. Uh,
2: it's, It's horrifying.
0: Yeah, I would be sympathetic to your argument if you actually had nothing to say about the Pipeline showdown. If that were true, then I could win the argument with you and still lose because the segment would suck if you felt forced to do it. But who are you fooling? You could easily crush eight minutes on the pipeline thing, even if it's only to explain why it's the biggest non-story ever, and that there's nothing to say about it or whatever. The point is, when there's a huge elephant in the room, it must somehow be acknowledged. Ignoring it is weird, and overshadows the thing you want to talk about. Do not respond to this email.
2: Who, who sent that, Jen?
0: Um. Okay, I'll go back. Uh, someone named E.J. Brin yes yes Jesse Brun
2: I think it's, who's I think, it, I think it's Je- it Bruno it's just Jess- Jesse Brown oh who's that guy oh hmm. well uh um. your criticism is noted Jesse uh we'll do nothing differently uh, but thanks for listening <laughs> that was the first season of Oppo I'm glad you consistently learned something every episode Jen
0: I learned that you and I agree too much.
2: No, we don't. Oh, wait, sorry. Yes, we do. Yeah, yeah, sorry. We, we do, actually. Okay, we yeah, do. yeah, yeah.
0: Well, we're going to try and put a, a stop to that next season. I think that we're comfortable enough around each other now where we can get really nasty and just go for the throats. Yeah? Sure. Cool. Thanks. Anytime.
2: So obviously that's it for the season of Oppo. If you like the show and want more of it, drop us a line at oppo at and we'll give you secret access to the secret shows. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at OppoCast.
0: And if you've got a moment, please give us a hand and fill out our listener survey at surveymonkey.com slash r slash oppocast. We would really like to give you the illusion that we're listening and that we care.
2: This episode was produced by David Crosby for Canada Land Media. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton and the music was by Nathan Burley.
0: I have the last word this week, and that word is sleep. I'm Justin King, and... (laughs) Wait,
2: what? (laughs) (laughs) What? Jen! Who is Justin King?
0: (laughs) I'm Jen Gerson in Calgary, and I'm opposed to Justin King. (laughs) No, wait. I'm opposed to Justin Lang.